This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, we talk to a union leader from AFGE that works in the Social Security Administration about underfunding and short staffing. We bring on Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky to talk about how workers deserve not only civil rights, but economic rights. We have a very sad story for you about Warrior Met scabs and executives later on in the show. In overtime, so you're going to want to make sure that you stay tuned for that, we're talking to a railroad worker about the fallout of the rail dispute. All that and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail or send us a text message uh, all throughout the week. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us... Anywhere you find anything online, we are on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok. And now, Adam tells me we are live on Twitch. We're live on Twitch, folks. So That's right. What's hap- what happens over there? Do we, we I think we get hype trains. Let's get a hype train going over I on have Twitch. no idea, but yeah, whatever good things can happen there, this hope they happen. Yeah. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to become a sustaining member of the program, make a one-time donation, buy our stickers or anything like that, you can go to our website. That's tvlr.fm. You can donate at tvlr.fm slash donate. You can check out what is in our store at tvlr.fm slash store. Or you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. If you're a member of a union, then hey, uh, think about getting your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. And so let's just go ahead and jump into our first segment of the week. That is Last Week in Southern Labor. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment that we do every week, mostly, where we tell you what happened in the labor movement in the South. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird?, which compiles all this information for the entire United States. So if you want to see what's going on outside the South, then subscribe to that newsletter at whogetsthebird.substack.com. And with that, let's jump into new organizing for the week and a half preceding December the 4th. 
in new organizing. We've got 75 workers who make chemicals for Neuron in Laporte, Texas are organizing with the Steelworkers Union. 65 more baristas at three locations all in the South this week. That's in Houston and Kingwood, Texas, and Ashburn, Virginia are joining the Starbucks Workers United wave. 28 workers who work on F-16s for K and Associates in New Orleans are unionizing with IUECWA. And in... Uh, NLRB union wins. We had 98 first student school bus workers in Amarillo, Texas, voting 61 to 9 to join the Teamsters Local 577. This is the same local that organized 17 drivers for Halcon Corporation in Amarillo and Dalhart, Texas, and Lib and Liberal, Kansas. Nice, very nice. Got a lot of strikes and bargaining updates today in uh, Edward Waters University in Jacksonville, Florida. They are moving to unrecognize their faculty's AAUP union, mm. saying that they can do this because of religious freedom. Among many jaw-dropping details, an ILA longshoreman union leader who serves on the school's board says he supports workers having union rights only if their employers agree. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, that calls for a censure from the ILA at the very least. Uh, I'd, I'd be pushing for a recall if that was my officer. Yeah. Fort Worth, Texas journalists at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram started an unfair labor practice strike this week at... King Daughters Medical Center in Ashland, Kentucky. Management says they are nullifying the existing SEIU 1199 contract covering 500 workers as part of the University of Kentucky takeover of the hospital. 800 dock workers at the Port of Mobile, Alabama remain on strike with ILA Local 1410. 1,100 paper mill workers with Steelworkers Local 507 in Canton, North Carolina, have voted down their second contract offer in a row at Evergreen Packaging, raising the possibility of a strike. Speaking of paper mills, nearly 500 USW members remain locked out at West Rock in Cottonton, Alabama. The NLRB union is raising the alarm not just about their existential funding issues, but also management efforts to end telework as if furloughs and constant underfunding were not enough to make staff want to quit. The telework fight at the EEOC, however, which led to FLRA charges, has been resolved per the AFGE Council 216. After authorizing a strike, Delta Airline Pilots Association pilots have a contract offer from the company that includes 34% raises. Members will have to vote on the deal, but the airlines seem to think it could move things at other tables where things have stalled, including at American, where, bargaining uh, where the bargaining committee rejected a deal, at United, where members rejected a deal, and Southwest, where TWU Local 550 dispatchers just held a rally and SWAPA pilots protested on Wall Street. At United Airlines, five unions... Uh, have formed a bargaining coalition, which is always promising, but in practice can mean many different things. Speaking of bargaining coalitions, workers at Disney in Kissimmee, Florida, rallied as their expired contract hit the two-month mark. The coalition of six unions involved represents around 42,000 workers. A transit strike didn't happen this week with ATU Local 1447 in Louisville, Kentucky, reaching an agreement with management after having authorized a strike. 
ATU Local 1493 in Roanoke, Virginia, held informational pickets for a new contract from First Transit, which operates the Areas Valley Metro. Teachers in St. Johns County, Florida, have rejected a contract offer with a piddling $1,200 raise. Plant City, Florida firefighters with IAFF are at an impasse, seeking a 36% increase over three years. In politics and legislation, we all know that Joe Biden, with the help of the Democratic and Republican parties, imposed a contract on some 60,000 rail workers, those four unions which had rejected agreements. Denying them paid sick days or any other meaningful improvement to a critical industry that is nearing operational collapse due to financialized profiteering and mass worker exodus, which is by design. It's important to understand that one, Biden could have acted otherwise, mm. and two, the unions could have acted otherwise. They chose an inside strategy that relied entirely on Joe Biden doing the right thing, and they refused to do anything, mobilize members, strike. Two unions actually unilaterally moved strike deadlines without new tentative agreements, and several others moved them months down the line, losing all political leverage before the midterms. The unions also refused to work with progressives or others who might have made important allies when Biden twisted the knife. The political punchline here is that Joe Biden sided with capital when the chips were down, no matter how many union halls he uses for photo ops. Amen. The union punchline is that if labor relies exclusively on the Democratic Party inside track and won't use its people power or think creatively or politically, we are doomed. Amen. The Texas Supreme Court heard arguments in a case in which Houston firefighters and presumably those across the state, collective bargaining rights are at stake. In internal union politics, there is an absolute earthquake underway at the UAW as reformers sweep into office uh, in that union's first ever direct elections for top officers. UAW Members United, which is the slate backed by Reform Caucus Unite All Workers for Democracy, challenged for seven of the 14 spots on the International Executive Board and won five of them outright. The other two, which is the Region 9 director covering Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Western New York, and the International President, which obviously covers the whole union, will go to runoffs beginning in January. Looking at the anti-incumbent margins, however, hovering around 60%, it's hard to imagine Ray Curry hangs on to his seat, which means that new leadership will be bargaining a Big Three contract that expires in mid-September, which means negotiations are likely to be a lot more aggressive. So looking forward to seeing what that, uh, uh, what that brings out. UAW is such an important union. It's really... It's ex it's exciting to see this kind of reform effort taking hold, and it's much needed, much overdue. And yeah, I'm excited to see what happens. Absolutely, absolutely. So, have we got Angela in the Zoom yet? She is actually uh, coming into the Zoom right now as we speak. Fantastic, Angela is coming into the uh, into the uh, into the Zoom right now, and she is our first guest. Our first guest this morning is Angela D. Geronimo. She is a 
claims specialist for the Social Security Administration at a field office in New Jersey, if I remember correctly. She is also regional vice president for the AFGE Council 220, which uh, is the council of uh, Social Security field offices. And uh, she's also president for her local union. Angela, thanks for joining us on the Valley Labor Report this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. And what local number is are are, uh, are you out of? Local twenty three sixty nine. Twenty three sixty nine. Well, appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk to us this morning. And let's just start off with uh, some basic background information for folks at the top here. Um, what services and programs does the Social Security Administration administer? Well, the Social Security Administration provides services for the most vulnerable among our population. So that is the elderly and the disabled. We administer retirement survivors, Medicare and disability benefits. Uh, we also, we administer two programs that a lot of people don't really understand and differentiate. There is social security um, programs where the worker has worked into, has paid into it throughout their work lives uh, through FICA taxes. And there's also SSI. We administer that as well. SSI is a needs-based program for people whose social security benefits may be too low or who are not insured for uh, social security. So that is for people who are disabled and for aged people age 65 or older. And what is, you know, what are some of the practical things that that being able to receive these payments provide these Americans, the elderly and the disabled and, and the like? Okay, so um, our programs basically are uh, the number one uh, reason why elderly and disabled individuals are kept out of poverty. Right? So they have this monthly benefit that they could count on, that they use for housing, for uh, food, for clothing, etc. So with, like I said, with Social Security, uh, workers have paid into the program and now they are getting a pension from it. Uh, the SSI, again, needs-based. So uh, it, when you're at your most vulnerable, uh, when you get to the point where you're retiring, you worked your entire life, you now have a pension. A lot of workers don't have the luxury of earning at a level where they pay into a private pension fund. Some do, and that's in addition to their Social Security, uh, potentially, uh, but most do not. So mm -hmm. it basically keeps people out of poverty. It is a, an excellent program. And in the history of our country, probably the most effective. I definitely agree. I think it, it was, you know, if, if you look at actually how many people were in poverty before Social Security came about, how many elderly people were in poverty. I mean, the difference between elder poverty today and before Social Security is really staggering. That's that's some homework for people. Uh, I would encourage you to look that up. How many folks would you say are receiving some form of Social Security payment now? Right now, in 2021, there are 69.8 million individuals receiving benefits. And how many folks were on Social Security in uh, some form of Social Security payment in 2010? That was 59.2 million. 
And so if I'm remembering right, there was a uh, uh, you know there was an AFGE article about this, and and that's and that's basically like 20% more. There are 20% more people receiving uh, social security payments between uh, uh, since 2010. From 2010 to now, we've got 20% more people uh, than than were on it previously. And so presumably, Angela and and you know I, I'm sure that this, that this is the case. The Social Security Administration has received commensurate funding increases to ensure that Americans who rely on these payments are able to get them in a timely fashion and that the workers at this administration are able to do that and provide for the American people in a timely fashion, right? They, uh, Congress does provide through budget for uh, the administering of these programs. Uh, we have not been uh, funded adequately, uh, I would say, probably in the last decade. And if I let's I can't th- have there been actual funding cuts or have we just been seeing stagnant funding since 2010? Well, it's been um, stagnant and at times uh, based on inflation, it actually has been cuts. So uh, we're seeing a declining of funding for administrating the program while we're seeing an increase in beneficiaries that are receiving benefits and are applying for benefits. So Mm -hmm. the, uh, the ratio is we're currently at a staffing deficit of approximately 13% while we have seen an increase of 21% in beneficiaries. Mm, mm. And this is saying here from from the uh, uh, from AFGE's website that the budget for processing Social Security claims has actually gone down by 14% since 2010. And I'm assuming that that's and I'm assuming that that's like accounting for inflation and stuff. While at the same time, like you said, 20% more beneficiaries, but the budget for administering all this has gone down by 14%. And so, you know, it, what does that mean for what does that mean both for the workers and for the people receiving these these uh, benefits? Well, to put it in kind of simpler terms, right? We have ten approximately ten million more people that we are uh, serving their um, their benefits with four thousand fewer employees. I used to say at a certain point that uh, we were being asked, each employee was being asked to do the work of two. I would not be exaggerating if I were to say right now that each employee is being asked to do the work of 10. Mm. Uh, we're seeing things like uh, employees are being assigned uh, double appointments, sometimes triple appointments at the same exact time. I don't know how that is possible to interview two or three people all at one time. It's impossible. Right. Uh, While at the same time you have it's not just that interview with the individual, that contact with the individual, the member of the public. There's also back end work that needs to be done. Mm. We need to adjudicate the claims. We need to uh, process them, to put it in a more simple uh, term. With disability, we also need to send these disability. We are not medical professionals. We don't make medical determinations, the employees at the Social Security Administration. We send them off to a state agency that makes the uh, disability determination, the medical determination. 
So we need to fund that as well, and we haven't been funding those. We also have post-entitlement actions that need to be taken. All of these things used to be broken up amongst many employees for even just one uh, claim. But now we're being asked to do the full range while also answering incoming calls and mm. taking care of incoming people in without appointments in the office. So um, it, it makes it very difficult. Without funding, there are different ways to starve a program, right? You can cut the benefits itself or you can starve the funding to administer those programs. So that's basically where Congress needs to really pay attention and realize that they need to bring us to the levels of funding that we need. Right, right. And all, and all of this, you know, all this extra work that's being piled on to uh, workers at the Social Security Administration, you know, this means that this means that, that the recipients are having to wait longer and, uh, before their benefits can be administered. And I, and I think if I remember uh, uh, reading an article that, you know, most people when they first apply for disability insurance, they're denied. And that and th so that process used to take something like three months, and now it's taking seven months just to get through that first denial, and then they have to apply again because you know because for some reason that just seems to be the way that the system works. And all of this time, you're looking at six months to a year where people are not able to you know that they're not having any support. That is correct, and. Um, you know, again, the initial stage, you take the claim, you, uh, as far as a, a claim specialist like myself, you take the claim, you send it to the state agency for a determination. They're underfunded, so they don't have adequate staffing. So that it holds up the process there. Then it comes back to uh, us at the office, depending on what that determination is, we do what we need to do. If it's denied, the person gets the notice of denial. They're able to ask for a reconsideration. They might be denied at that second level. And again, all of this takes time because of the short staffing situation. And then if they are denied at that level, they're going to need to ask for a hearing if they want to continue to pursue it. They're going to ask for a hearing. Now this is a hearing with our administrative law judges who are also understaffed and they will be put in queue for a hearing, which will take some time as well. So um, the American public, because of the understaffing and the starving of uh, our administrative budget, is suffering. They are seeing long delays that they should not be seeing. And how is this affecting morale at the Social Security Administration? We have very dedicated employees at the Social Security Administration. I always say there's a common thread amongst people who decide that they want to work for the Social Security Administration. It comes from a perspective of wanting to provide service, right? Service to the American public. We're not just making widgets. We're making mm -hmm. a difference in people's lives. So when you have that type of employee who is dedicated and truly wants to do a good job and truly wants to provide quality service. And you're constantly seeing that you can never see the end of the pile on your, your virtual desk because it's on it's lists on computers. But for the sake of illustration, you never see the bottom of the pile. You never see the, uh, the clear desk where everything that you set out to do for the day, even for just the day, is done. 
because you're constantly pulled in different directions, uh, things that need your immediate attention. Uh, you have the person in front of you, obviously they deserve your attention. So your morale is very low. And then you have um, you know, a situation where management is serving lists, not people, right? So they, uh, the Social Security Administration, the leadership really needs to shift gears and uh, refocus on being employee oriented, mm. making the employee the center of public service and create an environment where every employee can uh, blossom and thrive. And that will then in turn translate to um, excellent customer service and uh, public service. Uh, once staffing is up and you're able to do your job uh, instead of um, being tone deaf to the fact that the reason that the work is not getting done is not because the employee is not putting in 150%, literally 150% each day, uh, but actually because uh, there is a short staffing crisis. We're not able to retain our people because at a certain point morale gets to be too much um, where you're feeling you're not effective, you're not appreciated, and you're never going to be able to do this job well. Um, that all right. leads to yeah. recruitment also, uh, we're for the first time seeing where, uh, if we have job openings, candidates are actually turning it down when they're offered the job that had never happened before. Social security used to be at the top of, uh, the federal agencies for, um, agencies where people wanted to work. It's now close to the bottom. I think we're second to last. Hmm. And so what is uh, AFGE Council 220 asking for from Congress? We are asking for adequate funding uh, where uh, actually it was, um, we're actually requesting, I'll give you the actual numbers because I have it in front of me. It's 1.726 billion increase above what President Biden's budget request of 14.73 billion was for <clears throat> excuse me, FY23. That would in turn allow for uh, hiring at an adequate rate. It would also allow for updating technology. It would uh, not just uh, staff uh, uh, the Social Security employees, but also the state agencies where we can get the disability claims moving as well. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Well, Angela, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us this morning. Is there anything else that you reckon folks ought to know about about this issue? I, we have our position papers on our website, which is afgec220.org, and that's available to anyone if they want to take a look at it. Uh, I encourage people to take a look at it. It's very thoughtful and very thorough. Um, and I thank you for uh, taking up our cause and for giving us a voice this morning. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Angela G. Geronimo, president of AFGE Local 2396, regional vice president for AFGE Council 220. Thanks for talking to us. Take care. Thank you. All right. Folks, we're going to be going to a break. On the other side, we are talking to Harvey J.K. about a 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, along with Alan Minsky. Uh, if you want to give us a call, you got any thoughts about the program so far, you can give us a call or shoot us a text message at 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. See you on the other side. 
Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know about how viable clean and renewable energy is. To that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to more than thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state. We're working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about our work and how you can join us at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. 
We've got a phone number and the lines are open. The phone number is 844-899-8857. You can call or text during the show and we can bring your call on the air or read your text message. But right now, we're going to go to our next guests if we've got them in the Zoom. Presumably we have them in the Zoom, right, Adam? Yes, we do. So our next guest today, uh, we've got Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky. Harvey J.K. is Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Alan Minsky is the Executive Director of the Progressive Democrats of America, but most importantly, they're our next guest. Alan, Harvey, thanks for taking the time to talk to us this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Great to have y'all. So um, y'all are here to talk about um, something that y'all have been pushing for a little while, which is a 21st century economic bill of rights. And uh, But first, let's start with some history. Harvey, you like history. Um, what is the precedent for stuff like this, for, for an economic bill of rights? That sounds, I, I you know, maybe people haven't heard that word before or, that, or they don't know what that means. What is the, are, are there other examples of something like this in, in history? Well, it's it's great to be speaking to the Tennessee Valley about Franklin Roosevelt. Okay, it's, it's it was Franklin Roosevelt's argument late in the course of World War II in 1944 that Americans had come to the point in the wake of the New Deal and the war effort and the way in which they had rallied. Okay, against not only the Great Depression but also those who had brought on the Great Depression in the 30s. And in the course of the war itself, that they had continued to advance labor unionism and that they had continued to raise their own expectations about a post-war social democratic America. So in his State of the Union message in 1944, Franklin Roosevelt, after reviewing the state of the war effort itself, actually said basically that Americans had come to the point, come to the realization, and in fact, I'll read his own words, We've come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Mm. Necessitous men, that is needy men, are not free men. And then he said, and this is one of the most, if you like, visionary, perhaps even radical statements made by an American president. We have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station, race, or creed. And he then proceeded to lay out a series of arguments, a series of calls for the creation of rights that would guarantee such things as health care, education, uh, housing, and so on. But this is the key thing. This was just not something that he perceived. In 1943, the White House had commissioned polls to be done asking Americans, what do they want to pursue after the war? And I can tell you that between 75 and 95 percent of the American people asked, that included Democrats and Republicans, basically wanted to extend and deepen what we would call today social democracy. The best example I can give you is on the question of health care, 83% of Americans said they wanted universal guaranteed health care. 
Now, he didn't he, he he didn't necessarily believe they would enact that right away. He predicted in his speech that there would be opposition, not not only from the, the sort of usual suspects on the right, but most especially he warned about opposition that would come from what we today would call the billionaires and in his day was were basically the millionaires who would mm. oppose it. And he actually said these are this is going to be right wing opposition that we're going to have to fight. Now, he didn't get the Economic Bill of Rights enacted, though he did get the GI Bill of Rights enacted, which was the largest social welfare program ever produced, ever enacted in American history. And yet the idea for an Economic Bill of Rights did not go away. Okay, it was there sort of in the in the imagination of a vast number of Americans and especially in the ranks of labor. And in the 1960s, so we're talking good 20 years later, A. Philip Randolph, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, one of the most significant labor and civil rights leaders of the 20th century, he put together what, we, what came to be called the Freedom Budget, in which he called on Americans, on Congress, to enact a budget that would, in 10 years, completely eliminate poverty and would realize the argument that FDR had made at the beginning of the war, that is World War II, for the four freedoms, especially the idea of freedom from want and fear. And I'll just tell you, 150 leading figures, foundation heads, labor union leaders, political figures, endorsed this call. Unfortunately, the war in Vietnam was given Pride of place, you might say, though hardly pride in our minds today. Nevertheless, not long after this uh, this call, which uh, Randolph issued in 1965, Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968 called for the creation of an economic bill of rights for all Americans. Once again, it didn't happen, though much that did take place in the great society years of Lyndon Johnson was actually an effort to extend the New Deal in, in ways that, that had not happened during the 1940s. But then, of course, in our own time, we saw in the election year of 2000, and then, I'm sorry, in 2000, sorry, listen to me, 2016 and then 2020, Bernie Sanders reminded Americans of that original FDR call for an economic bill of rights, and he pushed the idea. So what what's happened is, Alan, as executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, and I, having produced with the Gravel Institute a video on FDR's speech and its significance for us today, we put together in cooperation with a number of other people, including Nina Turner from Cleveland, Ohio, this call for an economic bill of rights, a 21st century economic bill of rights. And that's what we've been trying to sort of get the word out in these last nine months. I just want to say before before we get into what that is, is that, and this is crucial, in 1944, when FDR issued that call, the first and foremost groups to rally behind that call were both the AFL and the CIO, which I'm sure most people know in those days were two separate federations. One were the trades unions and the other the industrial unions. And both organized and campaigned for both FDR and the Economic Bill of Rights. And in the case of the CIO, they actually launched a CIO political action committee to support the re-election of FDR. But also 
very hard they pushed for the Economic Bill of Rights. And I'll just give you, since this is, a, I can play a visual game here, a show and tell. This book, the first round, should anyone be interested, is the story of the CIO Political Action Committee. Those pages are not necessary, they were not written as a book. Those are the pamphlets, the numerous pamphlets oh, cool. that the CIO issued to promote the, at the fight, as they saw it, for the Economic Bill of Rights. And it's time that labor today, in the absence of an administration that will advance it, that labor itself today take the lead alongside groups like Progressive Democrats of America, Our Revolution, and others to make an Economic Bill of Rights part of our political imagination. Yeah, and that's the what you were talking about, the necessitous men are not free men. I think that is really the crux of, of why it's so important to have something like this and why, you know, things like we just finished talking to a union leader for the Social Security Administration in AFGE about the importance of of actually, you know, not only funding Social Security and those benefits, but also funding the administration of them. Um, but and, and how beneficial Social Security and Medicare have been to working people, to Americans to Americans with disabilities and how much less free they would be without, you know, without that and, and how much more free more people would be if, if we had if we had something like what FDR was pushing before. Yeah, I'll just say in terms of, the, of Social Security, two, two major laws were enacted in 1935 under the with the with the initiative of the Democratic Congress and the president who led them, and that is. The Social Security Act that you're referring to, number one, and number two, the National Labor Relations Act, they changed the political landscape in America. It placed, if you like, social democracy directly onto the American political landscape. Mm. And in the case of National Labor Relations Act, it placed the federal government behind workers' efforts to organize. Now, this is interesting because you, if you had on a guest who was talking about the underfunding of the social security apparatus, it's also the case that the National Labor Relations Act is really stymied in its efforts to support the unionization efforts of Amazon workers and Starbucks workers and all the other folks who are fighting for their rights in the workplace. Why? Because we have underfunded, meaning the American government has underfunded the National Labor Relations. They are understaffed and in seriously incapacitated from pursuing their mission. Right, right. And and so, what were the uh, what were some of the forces that were arrayed against? Um, you know, and and you you spoke about this a bit uh, uh, against FDR and and working people and, and the unions who were fighting for an a, an economic bill of rights before. The fiercest opposition came from the big corporations, okay? The big automakers, the steelmakers. They actually launched campaigns after the war, after the war to try to block the ambitions and aspirations of the American people to secure the Economic Bill of Rights. After FDR passed away, Truman, who was not at all the kind of politician that FDR had, FDR was, did initially seek to make the Economic Bill of Rights part of his own administration's agenda. And though he did, he, he made many a mistake, it is the case that, it, again, it did not die. But they actually launched campaigns. Now, let's not forget, 
that after the war, both the AFL and CIO, and once again, especially the CIO, launched massive organizing campaigns in the South in order to try to break the back of these right, you know, the, these right to work states. But of course, the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947 placed the right to work in 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 basically into law. Okay, so the and it made it all the more difficult. And I'll just say this is a, as a sidebar, but a very important sidebar to this: that when labor was organizing in the South, the problem that they confronted was not only the opposition of business; they also confronted the opposition of white supremacy. Because if you're going to organize labor in the South, you had to organize black and white workers. But Jim Crow laws made it very difficult, and attitudes of racist attitudes made it all the more difficult. So, and and to his favor, uh, Truman did actually launch the first National Civil Rights um, Commission uh, to, to propose the kinds of things that needed to happen. In any case, the opposition was strong, absolutely strong, against national health care. Companies did not want national health care. And by the way, workers did not have health care by way of where they worked at that time. It was a very rare thing to have health care. And it did not become, so to speak, a more common practice for big corporations to negotiate that kind of question until 1950 with the Treaty of Detroit, where the UAW finally and, and CIO finally gave way to the idea of what we would call private welfare programs, health care by way of your employer. The CIO and the AFL both, for quite a few years after the war, refused to negotiate for health care because they believed in national health care. And by the way, wow. strangely enough, it was the AFL that really continued the fight for national health care even more aggressively during the 50s and, and beyond than did the CIO because the CIO had the big industrial contracts. But anyhow, the, it's this Economic Bill of Rights would once again I think progressively, if not indeed radically transform the political landscape, it would change the lives of the vast majority of Americans and also create a more prosperous America. The greatest problem that 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 the, that Roosevelt confronted when he took office in 1933 was the fact that the economy couldn't get going because the workers didn't have any purchasing power. They were not only not only the unemployed, but those who were working were paid so little, had so little that they could not, if you like, prime the pump. And mm. it had to be the government. And that was FDR's position. And if we think about, we now live in a new gilded age, these last 45 years, right. the gross inequalities, the vast concentrations of wealth that has also corrupted American political life and literally handed power over to a class of billionaire plutocrats, this Economic Bill of Rights would change the political environment, okay? I had a question. I wanted to bring Alan into the conversation and just ask, what has been the response from folks about your call to the second or a, a new Economic Bill of Rights, both from political circles, you know, other progressive Democrats, uh, but also from I'm curious if you've had any reactions from labor leaders and, and the unions themselves. Um, basically, our um, when we introduce this to progressives and to people in the union movement and we have an opportunity to present it in a not not but first of all, briefly and then in a more extensive way, it has been met with universal enthusiasm and embrace. 
However, um, I do fear that the contemporary American progressive movement, we're not we're not in the same phase we were in before the Bernie Sanders campaign of 2015, 2016. Um, for people who do not know, Progressive Democrats of America, PEA, was the national organization that drafted Bernie Sanders to run as a Democrat. We began that in 2013. We ran the Run Bernie Run campaign. It took a lot of arm twisting to get Bernie to run and to run as a Democrat. And we were the organization that pursued that. Everybody else on the progressive left at the time was trying to draft Elizabeth Warren. There's a bit of a backstory there I won't go into as to why we focused on Bernie. But Bernie, as you might remember, was even criticized, especially by people affiliated with the Clinton campaign, that he was all about economics. Okay. Okay, fast forward to when we introduced this to the world, Harvey and I, at the beginning of this past year. And um, one of the arguments that I made most vociferously to the general public was that um, that economics were the top issue in polling for the American people. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the polls across the last year, that was the case. If you look at the polls over the last 50 years in America, it is lapping all other competition. And here was even the progressive left going into the 2022 primary season without an economic message. Now, unfortunately, um, there are other and I'm not going to be I'm not going to name them by names because they are our allies and we work with them. We sit on various tables with them uh, as we try to decide, you know, are we going to unify behind uh, this or that candidate in this or that district? They become very invested in uh, in other projects, and particularly with one that PDA fully endorses, which is the Green New Deal. Um, unfortunately, the Green New Deal, and then they'll argue, well, we have the Green New Deal already. Well, the Green New Deal is great, but in the public imagination, it is not an economic program. In the public imagination, it is overwhelmingly perceived as being primarily about the environment, the environmental crisis, et cetera. In fact, it has a lot of problems in terms of workers thinking it will take their jobs away and not replace mm. them with high paying jobs. And um, so it's actually not a very strong, and you've seen it's sort of fallen out of the discourse more out of the last two years. So we, we did try to get groups to endorse the 21st Ec uh, Century Economic Bill of Rights, and we didn't fully succeed. Well, Harvey and I are gonna go to bat on that and insist the progressive Democrats wake up and understand what the American people want to hear progressives talk about uh, that one of the reasons I think that Bernie did so phenomenally well, far exceeding PDA's ex expectations, far exceeding his own expectations in 2015 and 2016 is because he led with economics. Look, the American dream crashed and burned in 2007, 2008, and it has not come back in anything resembling its classical mythological form, which, of course, revolves around independent homeownership. Okay. And uh, neoliberalism as a social organizing economic strategy was able to maintain that myth through households taking on more and more debt. Um, and of course, that's what collapsed, especially around household mortgages and debts in 2007 and 8. And there's no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. We need a full on reorganization of the wealth distribution in the United States of America. People know this. People connect with it. And when you just list off what's in our proposal for a 21st century economic bill of rights, it is common sense what people want. I don't know if you all know, but in the past just month, we've had out of the state of New Jersey, a poll that shows 71% of the population of New Jersey basically supports single payer universal health care, Medicare for all. 
a red county in Wisconsin ran a ballot measure called Dunn County. I mean, it's an overwhelmingly GOP county, and it, in its, its measure on the ballot, voted to support universal single-payer health care. Talk to mm. people this way about the first entry on the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, the right fully to a useful job at a living wage. And you say to them, okay, whether it's the market or it's a public job, if a adult human being works 40 hours a week at a job, should they have to have another job? Or should they, by right, be earning a living wage when they do that job? And almost across the board, everybody will say it should be the, the latter, not the former. They should not be in the situation they are in now where they need two, three, four jobs just to make ends meet. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, this is really powerful stuff to the American people right now. And sadly, I think even, even Sanders wasn't quite as strong on economics in 2020 as he was in 2016. And um, it's it, it is the strong hand winning message of the progressive movement. And uh, progressives need to wake up and realize that, you know, if, if they're going to grow the movement and we need to. I mean, neoliberalism as a social organs, organizing principle has been devastating. It's it has delivered the United States to the most severe political crisis that we've had in this country, maybe since the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Trumpism and, uh, you know, you have a former president saying he wants to suspend the Constitution for crying out loud. And of course, the wealth inequality is dramatic. And also, let's be honest, neoliberal capitalism is an organizing principle for this country and the world has 100% failed to address an existential crisis for all of humanity. In fact, you either are willing, willfully delusion, deluding yourself, or you have to accept that the idea that the market is going to answer our crisis around the global climate, or we have to change things. And we have to change things in a way that brings democratic control, not market control, over the solutions to that problem and bring democratic control, not not eviscerating markets, not eliminating markets. I don't think that there's an appetite for that among the American people to revert to something like command economy of proposals or even highly escalated percentage of the economy being, except for the making the, the healthcare system, of course, uh, government run. Um, other than that big increase in government expenditures, I don't think there's a huge appetite to see the, the 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 public sector of the economy, you know, really just explode in size. So it's a question of, again, very much the approach that Roosevelt took. I mean, Roosevelt, you know, if you want to get fully theoretical, <laughs> um, you know, and I think Marxists have to sort of accept this, Marx did not um, account for Keynes and FDR, hmm. right? And it was off the FDR platform that the most prosperous middle class in the history of the world was built. And here's the thing, though. We do have to approach these things with the realization that building a New Deal-like economy in the 21st century is different than building it. In other words, building it off of the platform of where we are in the present moment in 2020 is different than building it off the platform coming out of the 1920s. So we're going to have to introduce these measures, pursue them, and uh, and be very agile as we do that. Uh, and But I think what's essential about what Harvey and I have done, given that last point I just made, is it provides a template of what the ends have to be. The means of how we get there probably builds off of the FDR New Deal template. But again, with adjustments, because 1920s Fordism is different than 2020 
neoliberalism. But we can't get caught up in anything like Tony Blair's third wayism because that is just bogus. That is mm-hmm. all of that just amounted to allocations to the welfare state when you had surpluses and then austerity otherwise. So everything was on a downward path and wealth inequality increased. No, we need these ends as outlined in the 21st century economic bill of rights and nothing other than achieving them is politically adequate. And you've got, we've gone through a couple of them already. That's the, the right to a useful and, and, um, uh, well-paying job and uh, the right to health care, which would be Medicare for all. Those are a couple of the platforms on a a, a, a couple of the positions in, in the Economic Bill of Rights that y'all are pushing. What are the others that y'all are uh, that y'all are looking for? Harvey, I can I, Harvey can return because he is so much more eloquent than I am. And by the way, Harvey gets has the pleasure of getting to cite quotes from FDR and Thomas Paine, <laughs> who are who you know obviously it's it's more of an eloquent form of the English language than than uh, all of us who've lived for 40 years uh, consuming corporate television as the model mm. for the English language. So we can return to <laughs> Harvey's Elkins, but I'll read the 10 of them so everybody can know what they are. And I'll just read them straightforward with no commentary. Number one is a useful job that pays a living wage. Number two, a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. Three, comprehensive quality health care. And I think we probably will add a phrase, free at the point of service. Four, complete cost-free public education and access to broadband internet. Five, decent, safe, affordable housing. Let me just pause to say all of these would be considered effectively human rights. Okay, so decent, safe, affordable housing, number five, like a human right. Six, a clean environment and a healthy planet. Seven, a meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement. Number eight, sound banking and financial services. Number nine, an equitable and economically fair justice system. And number 10, recreation and participation in civic and democratic life. And maybe to interpret that last one for people, vacation, paid vacation, exactly what Mm -hmm. the railroad workers did not get and of course deserve as a human right. So those are the 10. I did add some commentary, I apologize, but now back (laughs) to you guys. Yeah, well, if Harvey. I could just add, sorry, if I could just add, and and on uh, regarding these things, that these actually are rooted in American history. Let's be clear about it, okay? Uh, for a start, we'll make it clear. In 1933, when FDR signed into law the National Industrial Recovery Act, he actually said that no company should be allowed to operate in the United States that did not pay a living wage, okay? That's that's 90, 90 years ago, okay? 90 years ago. Secondly, the right to a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining was not in his original call for an economic bill of rights because he had already signed in 1935 into law the National Labor Relations Act. But the reason we included this as a separate line in here is because the way in which the National Labor Relations Act has been and the right of workers to organize has been so devastated by way of the Taft-Hartley Act of 47 and ensuing developments, appointments to the National Labor Relations Board and also the underfunding of it. The comprehensive quality health care, FDR himself in 1935 when he signed into law the Social Security Act knew that he had made compromises. 
One of the compromises was that it left out agricultural and household workers, which later eventually under later presidents would 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 not be the case. They would be covered. However, he wanted national health care as early as 1935, but he could not secure it because the American Medical Association was prepared to launch a massive campaign against the whole Social Security Act and big business did not want, as I've said before, national health care. Um, the number seven, the meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement, that goes all the way back to Thomas Paine in the time of the American mm. and French revolutions, when he authored a pamphlet called Agrarian Justice, and actually said that you that the rich, the landed rich, should be taxed to provide funds in order to provide stakes, S-T-A-K-E-S, for young people to start out in life and not fall into poverty. And, and at the same time, there should be the creation of what we now call the social security system. Mm -hmm. So these are rooted. And by the way, the last one, which I just love, recreation and participation in civic and democratic life, in the original proposal that a commission uh, recommended to FDR who requested the creation of an economic bill of rights, it actually said a right to adventure. We left out the adventure. We assume people can create their own adventures when they can finally get time off. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah, I think, and that's so, you know, we actually had a conversation with, uh, um, with a couple of, of local bosses who, uh, you know, uh, ha have this like hustle and grind podcast now. And, you know, they were, uh, uh, it, it was really just amazing how they have, and, and, you know, these, they don't have like this huge, you know, they're small business owners, right? And they're still, they're still doing some amount of labor and, and they're, and, but they have totally bought into this idea that, you know, like, like you were saying, Alan, the, 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 the organizing principle of this economy is neoliberal capitalism that, that I'm going to make my way above other people. And, you know, one of the things that one of them said was, it is a poor man's mentality to want to work for somebody else, but it's also a poor man's mentality to work for yourself because you want other people working for you. And it's like, I don't, I don't really want that. I don't really want that. And, and, you know, they just thought it was so crazy that I, I was like, yeah, I think, you know, people, people should have a right to, to a living wage. People should have a right to some time off. Uh, and, and they also thought it was crazy that I agreed that seniority in union contracts was a good thing. You know, they were talking about how, um, oh, isn't it so bad that just because somebody's worked there for 10 years, they might get priority on when they take vacation over somebody else. And I'm like, 10 years is a long time. And for most people, if you've been somewhere 10 years, that's your best 10 years. Like if I work for somewhere from 25 to 35, I should get something for giving them literally the best years of my life, right? And, and that, this is a lot of what y'all are talking about and... and and how you know yeah, well working it goes people all the way deserve back to the it goes all the way back to the american revolution okay they may not have had it as fully developed when they wrote the declaration the founders mm -hmm. but they put right in the declaration the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness ask anyone today what would it take to be assured of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness right. and they will probably on reflection recite without rehearsal this economic bill of rights. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know, Harvey. You're telling me that that it wouldn't that you couldn't pursue happiness if you didn't have a, a house or a job or health care. I think I think it would probably I think some people would probably argue that 
They would well, be wrong, maybe, but they would argue you it. Could you could pursue happiness, but tragically, it might end up you'd be pursuing it in a bottle. Mm. Um, also, I think one of the things that, that look, small, you raise a very important point. And the ideology that you bring up, um, the left has to contend with. Um, if you actually look at, again, public opinion polls, um, until very recently, the only group of people that surpassed small business owners as being approved of and liked by the American public were teachers. Mm. I fear, given the right-wing offensive on teachers, that that may have even shifted further. Now, um, small business owners, um, in fact, there's been some very good, as it were, sort of like anthropology of the Republican Party, like who makes up um, the sort of brain trust of the Republican Party. You know, it, it, there is all this discussion of how they're coastal elites and how they're all Democrats and, you know, who who are the leaders of the Republican Party. And, and a good study, a good article was put out following up on some studies by people that it is largely the country club set of small business owners that exists across the country in metropolitan areas after metropolitan areas from Boise, Idaho to Salt Lake City, Cincinnati, to St. Louis, to right. Birmingham, Alabama, et cetera, that make up in many respects the, the, the clear core support and their small business owners and such. And then on top of that comes the Koch brothers and all the gajillionaires. Mm -hmm. um, but um, that particular ideology really needs to be shaken up and challenged by the left. And in particularly along the lines of exactly what you were talking about, because businesses can proceed in the way they are doing by having this just egregious labor exploitation, view labor as absolutely dispensable parts, make the jobs unpleasant, uh, not not uh, I mean not, they don't make them unpleasant, but the wage levels, the lack of benefits, makes the people's lives very much a struggle who are working for them. Or you can have a unionized model. What do you have when you have a unionized model? You have workers committed to the project of the welfare of achieving the best place they can where they work and the best product and have commitment and pride in their jobs. And also, you know, maybe it's worker owned and then maybe it's uh, uh, collectively owned. And um, but um, yeah, small business, that that particular ideology does have to be confronted by the left because it is at the core of what has generated a society with so many free-floating social pathologies as American life has. I mean, very much at the core, all the way down to the, the health outcomes and dietary uh, mm -hmm. you know, habits of the United States population, which are worse than the rest of the, the anywhere else in the OECD world countries. And if you look at actually social indices right now in the United States, other than basically aggregate wealth, ones that are influenced by aggregate wealth, um, there are only a few where the United States is just at the very bottom. I mean, you can just name them off at the, off the top of our heads, all from from you know family families imploding, divorce rates, mass incarceration, homelessness, poverty, health outcomes, um, wealth inequality. On down the line, the United States is at the very bottom of all of the OECD countries. I mean, opioid addiction, uh, et cetera, across life the board. expectancy. Right. Mm -hmm. And at the very core of it is the abuse of labor, the balance of the population by the um, logic of American business. At, at, that's so important. And 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 that that leads me into, I, I think, some of the some of the final questions that we had. And, and Adam, Adam wrote this up. And, and but the I, I wanted to add a bit of context to it. And, and you know, Alan. The idea that, you know, the small business owner mythology that that I can pull myself up is so at the core 
of of, of so much and, and in this society and um, and I was talking, I, I was making the rounds. I'm working on a piece for the Real News about the paper mill lockout in in mm-hmm. Alabama, and, and I'm going to be releasing this in, in some form. Uh, and I'm not sure if it'll just be as part of that piece or if I'll do a standalone piece about it. But I had a conversation with a state representative in that area, where they said, "quote I'm definitely on the side of management." Uh, because I'm a small business owner and I know what it's like to sign a paycheck or whatever. And mm. these people are, are and, 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 and management is asking for what would amount to a 10% pay cut. And, you know, this is somebody that it, it's just, and, and so given, you know, that kind of, that entrenched level of ideology from the people that, that Alabamians elect, you know, the ones that vote. Uh, I think that there's a lot to be said about how many people don't vote and, and something on the order of only 20%, 26% of eligible Alabamians actually end up voting for Republicans. But, you know, given the things that we're up against here and the, and also across the country, um, we also know that there are uh, there is like a small but militant minority of folks in Alabama who support the things that 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 y'all are talking about here, who support the locked out paper mill workers down in Cottonton, who support the striking coal miners and everything that they're asking for. And not only do they support the things that they're asking for there, but they reckon that they should have more and that everybody should have more. Right. That, that you know, they support they support these things on broad based issues. And so given the historical experiences of movements in the past that have been pushing for stuff like this, what suggestions would you have for organizers and activists and unions and outside of unions uh, looking to assemble, you know, what Martin Luther King called a coalition of the conscience? Well, wow. I, sorry, if I could just, I have a quick line and then I'll hand it over to Alan since he heads progressive Democrats. Look, I've been saying for a few years now, there can be no vibrant left without a dynamic and vibrant labor movement. But it is, but let's be clear about it. Merely fighting one battle at a time will only get us so far and it doesn't Mm. even guarantee us any kind of victories. Indeed, as you were saying, we need a coalition. And the way you build a coalition is usually around a story and a vision. What the Economic Bill of Rights does is it grabs hold of American history the, the aspirations of generations, and it projects it onto the present and future, which I know sounds very fanciful, but let me be clearer about it. The labor movement has always pursued the kinds of things that are here. The time now is to grab hold of this Economic Bill of Rights as a way of bringing together the coalition that can actually start creating a dynamic labor movement and not battle upon battle alone, and also a dynamic and vibrant left. As Alan has regularly told me and in shows we've done together, it is the case that there is a winning political party in this country of progressives, which which unfortunately has had to defer to a losing political party of centrist and corporate Democrats. The Trumpsters Mm. have taken advantage of that kind of problem basically. So the thing is that progressives must advance inside of the Democratic Party, but we cannot advance. And I'm a labor unionist and a democratic socialist and a progressive. I see the coalition must come together around this kind of story and vision. Yeah, absolutely. And um, first of all, I want to just say um, 
and, and forgive me for not having encountered your show previously, before I was at Progressive Democrats of America, I worked in independent journalism and uh, and, and was a manager of a large radio station in Southern California, Progressive Station. Uh, this is a brilliant show. Uh, I can even just tell from talking with you all. And uh, uh, I think, of course, disseminating this kind of discourse as far and wide as you can among the population uh, will be very helpful. So uh, you're certainly doing one important element of the work. Um, yeah, I I mean, um, you know, if, you know, one of the problems we've had, um, not just in the Democratic Party, but also in the progressive movement, is to not uh, recognize and, and introduce our ideas and our um, proposals to the entire country. And so, um, you know, we are working on uh, coming off of the 2022 election cycle. Um, you know, we want to try to get out the word um, about progressive politics uh, more in places like Alabama. We're working on a progressive Southern strategy with some people that we'd like to introduce. So there's that. I, I can't say that I'm an expert in, in Alabama state politics, um, but I, I do believe that the working people of Alabama and the working people of the Southeast uh, will find in the 21st century economic bill of rights a set of proposals that will be very attractive to the sizable majority of the population. Um, now, um, uh, so, you know, definitely, definitely want to say pursue that, introduce the 21st century economic bill of rights everywhere we can. Um, and, uh, you know, what's your sense of the, of the barrier? I mean, I'd have to ask and listen, but I mean, obviously the institutional power of the Republican party in the Southeast is, uh, starting to frag to fragment. Uh, but at the very time as it gets weaker in Georgia, it gets stronger in Florida. So <laughs> that's a different dynamic. Florida is rather unique and Alabama, I suppose is a state which has gerrymandered congressional districts. It has the Republican Party deeply entrenched in state power uh, at the at the state level and at the statewide electoral level. Um, and so it would be a matter of introducing these ideas and then listening and, and understanding where the political where the where the where the ball is on the playing field, so to speak, and to move forward from there. Yeah, that would well that and there's definitely a lot there about, you know, my our opinion about what some of the obstacles are and and um, that's a that's another conversation yeah, that's a whole, I think that's that a whole we need to have with you guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I, we'd definitely be interested in having that. And and actually we have a a team a, a listener, a teamster from California who said as soon as you came on, Alan used to be the program manager to our great Pacifica station, KPF. Hey, uh, he should get you guys on there. That would be great. And we are definitely <laughs> open that's to a syndication. Job of mine, so it makes it a little difficult in that regard. But I would love to provide <laughs> your show, be in touch with you, and help do this. I think this is exemplary media, actually, what you're doing. Um, but I do think an important element to the answer of your question, though, um, and I don't know how specific it was to the region your question. You'd have to rewind the tape and find out from eight minutes ago. But I do think one of the key things for progressives is to not waver on the commitment. Mm. Again, this is what something like the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights does. It codifies, it clarifies what the ends have to be. But all and where and you know, then we learn how much it resonates in wherever we're introducing it, whatever the audience may be. But it also is a requirement for progressives to uh, understand and um, and take in from the people in each region. One thing I have learned in this job is that the regions in the United States, it's a vast country. And, you know, oftentimes national people who are leading national political organizations assume there's some kind of like unified national culture that makes everything very similar. And I found that to be very much not the case. 
and um, and and very and the political battle lines are drawn differently everywhere. And so we have to listen and we have to uh, coordinate and follow local leadership as well. But I think everywhere in the country, there are tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people in any state with sizable population who are already with us. And so then we introduce what we have and then we listen back to what people can provide to us and proceed from there. Alan Minsky is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. Harvey J.K. is uh, Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. Alan, Harvey, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. indeed. Thanks, guys. We really enjoyed it. Yep. All right, folks, we're going to go to our last break, and we will be right back to wrap this puppy up. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. We have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about our work advocating for customers and join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a grassroots organization building a multiracial working class movement for racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice in Alabama's rural communities. We stand in solidarity with Alabama workers and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report's efforts to inform and build the Southern Worker Movement. Please visit hometownaction.org and follow our social media channels at Hometown Action to learn more about how you too can get involved to make the South a better place for all workers. Solidarity, y'all. Support for this program also comes from the Iron Workers Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need iron workers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, 
and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Alabama's only Union Talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We just wrapped up a conversation with Harvey J.K. and Alan Minsky about a 21st century economic bill of rights. One thing that I really love about Harvey is his, his utilization of American history and popular revolutionary figures from American history to fight for things that... Uh, uh, that would be good for Americans as opposed to as opposed to using their legacy to try to hurt Americans, try to hurt working people right. here in this country. Or reinforce, you know, some backwards nationalistic uh, type of jingoism. Um, yeah. It's it's refreshing and it's uh yeah, it's under underappreciated sometimes the radical and revolutionary traditions within America. Absolutely. Harvey is one of the one of the best out there at bringing that back into the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, so last week, a week ago today, Warrior Matt Cole had a Christmas party for non-union employees <laughs> at the North River Yacht Club. <laughs> Way to rub it in. Yeah. 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 Warrior Met had a uh, uh, had a Christmas party for non-union employees at the no- North River Yacht Club in Brookwood last week, and um, and now a criminal investigation is underway after police say somebody placed several homemade Jack Rocks in the parking lot, um, <laughs> and apparently six vehicles received tire damage. So. Very unfortunate, I'm sure, for those scabs and executives who uh, 
who now have flat tires or who did have flat tires before they wrote a big check to get them fixed. So <laughs> just thought I would share that with you. Um, I think that like, you know, it, it's so amazing that the party took place at a yacht club because it really kind of, you know, it really illustrates the, uh, the which side are you on aspect. It's like, you've got union coal miners who, um, you know, there's been there there's been no connection of them to this to to these uh, jack rocks, uh, but you've got union coal miners who are work you know working people, and then you've got scabs and executives partying in a yacht club. You know, it, I think that for some of the people that would try to make this like a oh you know oh don't you feel so bad for the scabs right? I think that the the scenery makes it a bit diff difficult for them to. Uh, make us feel bad for the scabs and the executives you know i think this is a story where the less i say on the air the better <laughs> and i'll just leave it at that yep yep absolutely um folks make sure that you stay tuned in overtime oh also you know appreciate everybody hanging out in the chat um jacob jones says uh, if you haven't liked the stream, it's probably good for the algorithm. And yeah, I I assume it is too. You know, I tell people, but I don't I don't know. Presumably it is. Uh, but but yeah, if you're hanging out watching on, we've got 27 people watching and only 21 likes. What's up with that? So like and subscribe. Um, and also, if you know people that prefer watching on Twitch, we are now live on Twitch at TVLRFM. TVLRFM. Uh, if you search the Valley Labor Report, it doesn't come up. You got to search TVLRFM, so we got to fix that. Make sure it comes up if, if if you search the Valley Labor Report. Be patient with us, y'all. We're still learning this stuff, but uh, yeah, if you happen to be a Twitch expert, feel free to check out our channel and give us feedback. Let us know what we need to do to up our game on Twitch. Absolutely, um, and you know the um, we we've got coming up in overtime. We do have a. Uh, uh, a whole second half of the program. For folks that are listening to us on the radio right now, uh, we have a whole hour and a half, usually. An hour to an hour and a half that we do online only. Um, and so if you're listening to us on the radio, uh, find us on YouTube, find us on Facebook, now find us on Twitch, and you can continue listening to the show. Today, we have some really cool stuff lined up, uh, but most importantly, we're going to be talking to Matt Weaver, he is a railroad worker, a member of the Brotherhood of Maintenance and Way employees, which is a Teamsters affiliate, and uh, a member of Railroad Workers United, which is the interunion, you know, cross-craft solidarity caucus that's been pushing for more action uh, from the railroad unions. And we're going to be talking to him about some of the fallout from from the last week or so with the rail issue. Um, yeah, definitely looking forward to that. Um <laughs> It's been hard to avoid railroad coverage lately, but um, probably not super hard to avoid if you listen to uh, conservative radio. That's true. Stations. Yeah, yeah. I, I should I should strike that. It's definitely uh, easy to avoid hearing from actual workers yeah. uh, because that's not something uh, mainstream media likes to do a lot. Uh, while we have just a minute here before we get off the air on the FM radio, I did want to give a shout out to our friends at Hometown Action. Uh, today is a big day for them. They're having a um, hometown routes celebrating five years of rural organizing celebration down in Camp Hill, Alabama, starting 
about now from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So any of our folks down in that neck of the woods, y'all stop on by and say hello to our friends at Hometown Action. Really appreciate all they do. Appreciate their support of the show and all they do uh, in communities across Alabama to try to build working class power. Absolutely. Also, don't forget about uh, the UMWA folks who are still on strike. You can donate at paypal.me slash UMWA strike pantry. Um, and uh, leave us a voicemail, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Go to our website, tvlr.fm. And with that, we're going to head on off of the radio. Find us online, YouTube, Facebook, Twitch. All power to the workers. Thank you.